0: welcome to the podcast of central church this is our latest weekly message we are post easter as you would know um, but actually still in the season of easter in the church calendar often called eastertide Um, it's the season that runs from resurrection sunday right through to pentecost so pentecost is 50 days Penty meaning five, you know, it's just so beautiful. Um, so, I don't know, no, I don't know what cost means. <laughs> so we're, we're in this sort of, yeah, season of resurrection and ascension sort of times. And it's an interesting space in the narrative of Jesus' life because He's died and he's risen again and immediately after his rising we have these multiple appearances that the gospel writers record um, where Jesus meets with his followers in, in many different ways, some of which we talked about tonight. But the way in which he meets with them and connects with them is different to how it was before he died. It is much more mysterious and elusive. And he is both physically present in ways that make sense and in ways that don't. And he seems to disappear at random times. I don't know if there's a way I should hold this so it doesn't crackle. Um, So it's a strange like... It's a strange thing and I have in my own sort of faith journey probably over the last couple of years found myself most at home in these post-resurrection stories because the Jesus that I that I kind of can attempt to grasp in these stories or maybe even the 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 feelings and the the emotions of the followers of Jesus at that time, I feel like I've really resonated just in the space that I've been in my own faith journey. They were devastated, they were confused, they were afraid, they had lost the one that they loved and even though he was back, he was not the same as he was before. Um... He was mysterious and elusive. He hadn't met their expectations and yet he was something else entirely. And I have found myself in the stories of the two disciples walking away from Jerusalem in disappointment. I found myself in Thomas who just wasn't in the right place at the right time and missed it. I found myself on the beach with Jesus like in these stories where Jesus is reorienting his followers towards a new kind of life they've these stories for me have become like a kind of home i suppose for me just it's just been the season that i've been in like we connect in different ways with different parts of Jesus at different times in our lives and that's sort of a place I've been at home in for a while so it's quite nice I suppose this afternoon to be speaking on one of those narratives so we're going to have a look at John chapter 20 and the encounter that Mary has with Jesus in the garden right at the beginning um, on the first day Um, I that's the title slide because I finished on my slides and finished my message and then went to decide a title and then just went and did some gardening and then forgot (laughs) so there's no title it was was there and then it wasn't there and I had no good title for it except John chapter 20 (laughs) verses 1 to 18 so before we dive into it and what we're going to do what I'm going to do tonight is actually just really go through this passage um, verse by verse, and pull out some things that I have seen and some things that I have learned as I've, as I've read and reread and reread these kinds of encounters. But before I do, just to, um, thinking about Scripture and especially thinking about the Gospels, like when I grew up in the Christian faith and I was taught that all Scripture is God breathed. And that I think I was either told or imagined that God wrote the Bible through people. So in my mental image of how the Bible was written, it was almost like there was a dude, because it's always a dude, only the men wrote the Bible, um, writing. And like maybe like standing right behind like the author's shoulder was like... God or the Holy Spirit, or I don't know, my imagination was vague as well as like strange, telling the author what to write, like a dictation kind of thing, that's what I imagined when I was told that God wrote the Bible or told people what to write, the Bible's kind of inspired, and maybe that was good enough for the time, I don't really think that's how it happened, (laughs) Um, and I actually think, I've come to realise that that's actually quite an impoverished view of scripture. Not that God inspired it or breathed it or had his hand in it, not at all, but that it was just dictated and therefore the only role of the authors was to do do what they were told. It makes the Bible a very flat kind of piece of work that it's just about the words that were written down. But I've actually come to think about the Bible and especially about the Gospels as like works of art divinely inspired works of art. This is unbelievable literature that was crafted and written down by highly intelligent, highly spiritual, highly faithful, highly obedient people who wanted to have a faithful um, account of the life of Jesus. So it's These Gospels, I mean the whole Bible, but the Gospels for me in particular are magnificent works of art. And to write a Gospel, I mean it's very hard for us I think because it's just so foreign. Like a Gospel was actually a a literary genre at a particular time in history. So they're writing, like if you were to like set out and write a sci-fi novel, you would be writing according to particular You know ways of writing and ways of crafting worlds, and that that to write a gospel is a similar thing. A gospel is like it's part biography, it's part history, it's part theology, it's part cultural exposé, it's part propaganda in the best sense of the word. Um, When I say it's propaganda, has anyone ever read the first verse of Mark? Do you know what? You know, I mean, now, all of you who've just memorized Scripture can read it. This is what I mean by propaganda in the original sense. This is the first verse in the book of Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Like, that's propaganda because in first century Roman world, to just come out with a statement like that was highly political, it was highly like, it's not like, I'm not hiding my intent, the author of Mark wasn't like, I'll just let you read between the lines, the author of Mark was like, right, right from the outset, I'm telling you what this thing is, I'm telling you, this is a story about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and then the rest of Mark goes out to basically explain why Mark thinks that Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God, so it's like, propaganda in a holy and wonderful sense of the word and part memory keeping and all of this kind of weaves itself together in this magnificent work of art that works on us and works in us because it's God breathed and the Holy Spirit is all over this and as we read it and it reads us there's a kind of interaction that takes place and so I want us to have a look at this passage, John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 to 18 and just unpick it. And I hope that as we do this, you'll, your your senses will just come alive for the magnificence of John, the author of this passage, for what he was writing and for how that writing is still speaking to us today. So as you're listening this afternoon to what I have to say I actually want you to have two kinds of listening going on I want you to listen to the words that're coming out of my mouth if you want to and I want you to listen to what the Holy Spirit might want to say to you out of this marvelous text that that you would hear and you would hear what God wants to say to you this afternoon So let me read it um, in its entirety and then we'll go through it bit by bit. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb And we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but she did not realize that it was Jesus he asked her woman why are you crying who is it that you are looking for thinking he was the gardener she said sir if you have carried him away tell me where you have put him and I will get him Jesus said to her Mary that he had said these things to her. I love, I love this. It's a beautiful passage. One of the things about understanding the nature of the gospels, as all of the things that I said, as part biography, part history, part theology, um, part propaganda. Is it actually gives you a way to do away with the discrepancies in the facts. So, if you read some of the other gospels, you'll read that there was three women going to the tomb in the morning. In John's gospel, there's only one. If you're like caught up in historical accuracy, you'll just be arguing with yourself about who got it right. But if you just recognise that the authors were doing something artistically fantastic for meaning and truth-telling within the gospel, it doesn't matter if there was one, three, five, seventy-five, or nine women. It matters what's going on in it. In, in this story, John, in particular. Um, focuses this on Mary Magdalene so early on the first day of the week while it was still dark Mary went to the tomb and this is Mary waiting until it is absolutely legal for her to get up and go so they have had Sabbath from sundown Friday night they, they quickly had to bury the body of Jesus before sundown on Friday evening And then because Sabbath was in operation from sundown to sundown, so no work could be done. So Mary, knowing that Jesus had a very hasty burial and the appropriately honoring and holy way to tend to his body, that had not been done because they just needed to, (laughs) sounds terrible, doesn't it? Just needed to get him in and get back home before sundown. So she's waiting until it's most appropriate for her to get up and go back and do what she wanted to do which was probably anoint and clothe and wrap the body of Jesus in the way that culturally was honourable for her. So it's the first day of the week, it's still dark and Mary's going as early as she can. Did she sleep that night? I don't know. I don't know but you can sense this. If, you, if you're thinking about the emotion of this piece, the longing in Mary, the expectation in Mary, the grief in Mary, the, just, the desperate need to be close to the Jesus that she loved. And so she goes as early as she can. She gets to the tomb and she sees that the stone has been moved. Now, the passage doesn't indicate at all that she she looked in it doesn't say she didn't go in I don't know how close she got but she just got as close to see that something wasn't right and reading between the lines if you can imagine yourself in her place this is how what I think happened I think she and many of the disciples were expecting something to go wrong with the body of Jesus and when she saw the stone was moved, she knew all of her suspicions and fears were true. Something has happened. Now, she's not thinking, oh, Jesus is risen. She's thinking someone's going to steal the body. Because they, this is, you know, a, a renegade, a rebel. Um, they're not going to want, they know that, you know, there could be riots and things going on. They're going to do something to stop all of this. So it's like she, her worst expectations are confirmed as soon as she sees the stones move. We get no sense of how close she gets. All she sees is the stones moved and automatically for her that's like it's they've they've taken it. So she then runs back to... Um, where two of the disciples are. And it seems to indicate they're in two separate places. She runs against Simon Peter and then gets the other disciples. So she's moving and running and needing clarification. She's needing people with her in this experience of now devastation. Like she came to anoint the body of Jesus and her worst fears have been realized and she just needs people with her. So she goes and gets two of the boys and they. she says to them, they have taken the Lord. Like, who's they? It's not, it's not the disciples. Otherwise, she'd be like, you've taken... Like, so she's thinking it's a they. They being the Pharisees. They being the religious elites. They being the Romans. We're not told who they is. But all they're knowing is there's something going on. They have taken the body. There's something that she's very upset with. And we don't know where they've put him. So obviously, they think they've just, there's something going on. So Peter and the other disciple start running for the tomb. Verse four, I think, is a particularly funny inside joke for the disciples. There's no other reason why this is in there. Um, and it's quite hilarious because by the time John, the one Jesus loved, has written his gospel, Peter's probably long dead. So he can't defend himself as to actually who got there first. So I, this is where you start to see the... This is, these are beautiful pieces of literature written to communities with inside jokes. And so I think verse 4 is just an inside joke of... John both being able to say he's the one that um, <laughs> Jesus loved and um, that he was faster. So I do think that's just quite a uniquely beautiful, funny, quirky inside joke. So John, the one that Jesus loves, gets there first and he, just, he bends over and looks in and sees linen. So we get a little bit of detail from the first look When Peter comes along, Peter does what Peter always does, which is just bursts in with like, you know, like it's just such a Peter thing. I don't know what, his his legs are faster than his brain in most situations, Peter. So he just bowls straight into this tomb and then we get, you know, more detail. So Simon Peter, he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still laying in its place, separate from the linen we get these details finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside he saw and believed he saw and believed what he saw and believed the body was missing and it, the next verse tells us that they're not believing that's the resurrection going on it's like so all of this is like just to confirm someone's stolen the body But there is something amiss in this this whole narrative because there's these descriptions of the linen and John is putting into his story this difference between what the, the disciples have seen in a resurrection and what is actually happening now. So if you were you know, reading right through the Gospel of John, it would only have been a few chapters earlier that you would have read the story of the raising of Lazarus, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. When Lazarus comes out of his tomb, where's the linen? He's all wrapped up. And there's instructions to unwrap him why is John putting this information about the linen in the tomb because he he wants us to know this is a different category of something than what you've seen before if Jesus is raised from the dead he hasn't come out like Lazarus needing someone to unwrap him but we don't know that he's raised from the dead yet except we do because even John's audience knew as he was writing this down. There is something different to this resurrection, to the resurrection of Lazarus. And John's just writing these things in. Verse 9 kind of like confirms, this is, they don't get that it's resurrection. And then the two disciples just go back to where they're staying. I mean, what, what do you imagine like the feelings are in them? They've been woken up really early by a a woman who's upset. They've run and they've burst into the tomb. Their friend's body is missing. They don't know what to do. They've seen what the authorities do to people. That's why there's a body. So where do they go? They don't know where to go. They can't go anywhere for justice. Where do you go looking for a dead body that's been stolen? You don't want to go to the temple. People who've, Everyone in power is the ones they're suspecting. So what do they do? They just go back to where they're staying. And I imagine that they were confused and disoriented and afraid and had no idea what to do or what was going on or, or how to navigate any of this. So these two disciples go back and then we're left... Um, In verse 11 with Mary and it says, now Mary, or it probably is better written, but Mary, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, weeping. There's something about this, um, the writing of this, the writing of Mary being willing to linger at the place of her greatest pain. There's something about Mary's willingness to just stay. And it has echoes of, I think, of you know, just a few chapters earlier in Jesus' long prayers and talks to the um, disciples before he died, of which Mary would have heard all of this. And Jesus is saying to his followers, remain in me stay, abide in me. And I see in this just that John, like honoring the abiding and the staying and the remaining of Mary, faithful to the last place she knew her Messiah to be, She's just willing to stay there. There's also something I think... um, incredibly profound about Mary's willingness to kind of stare into the cool dark empty grave I don't know how you have felt if you've ever been when you've been to funerals if you've ever been to a graveside service if you've ever watched the body be lowered into the ground there is a there is something that happens in in us. I think it's so deeply full of grief and loss and finality and it's a very profound thing to linger in and Mary does this and I think it's a beautiful thing to have done and it's it's in this place for Mary and I say that because I don't think it's, natural for humans to want to linger in places of pain I think we are masters of doing anything to distract ourselves from hardship from grief from pain we will numb out and entertain ourselves away from anything that sits at that that devastating place but Mary but Mary but Mary waited there She was willing to stay and weep and just just be there in that place of loss and grief and pain. And as she's weeping, she bends over and looks into the tomb and verse 12 says she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. John doesn't tell us if those angels suddenly appeared or if they were there the entire time but all of a sudden Mary saw them. The, just the, it's just completely left out of the narrative. Most, and this is one of the most unusual um, stories of angels in Scripture because usually when angels appear on the scene in Scripture, especially in Gospels, what's the first thing they say? don't be afraid, and there's an appearance, and it's like, but in this scene, it's quite different. They're there, and Mary sees them, and I wonder if they were there all along, but something about Mary's willingness to stay meant that she was able, or she was given the gift To see the divine presence in dark places. And I think that's the gift of being someone who's willing to stay and to face whatever it is that that happens and to wait long enough for the darkness to become luminous. To wait long enough until you see the manifestation of God in the dark. I think John, that's the way John's writing it because this is not your normal angelic appearance. It's like they were there all along, but Mary suddenly saw them. I think there are blessings that come to those who wait long enough in the dark for God to show up. Years ago, I would have taken that idea and preached this preached a message that was like, hey everyone, just wait in the dark and you'll be right. But I've learned something about grace, and this is grace. Jesus showed up to those disciples who went home. And he showed up to the one who wasn't in the right place at the right time. And he showed up to the ones who were walking away from Jerusalem in disappointment. Because Jesus goes to all God's children. So there is no like, first prize to Mary although she does get some kind of like she is one of the first ones to see Jesus and I think that's good but this is grace that even the disciples who didn't stay still get to meet Jesus that's the grace of the gospel there is no prize for best behavior Jesus comes to all of us and yet there is something I think special there is something special about those who've learnt to see in the dark I think when you meet someone who has, who has encountered great grief and great loss and great pain and found the divine in the midst of it, there is something about wanting to be around a person like that because they there is something special. I think Mary was one of those people. So the angels don't do their usual um, speech, fear not. Um, they ask her a question. So... The angels that she sees don't have a message for Mary. They have a question. And their question is, woman, why are you crying? I don't know, know. Well, it's not actually random. It's very relevant, but it's also rhetorical. Maybe. No, I don't know. It's like obvious. So she says to them, they, again, the nebulous they, they have taken my Lord away. And I don't know where they have put him. So these divine angels, these messengers of God, these beacons of light in the darkness are not sent to Mary's grief and pain and loss with a message of hope. They're sent with a question. And I think sometimes divine questions are the best things to get uh, because they crack us open to something that we need to answer so Mary answers them now this is where the narrative if you read it as a narrative gets um, really interesting so I feel like I'm going to need to to make sense of this I'm going to need to like act it out because as you read it it really I don't I don't think you see it unless you see acted out so um, you two can be the angels and this can be Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to have to read the narrative to you. So this is, it's, it's bizarre. It's up there. They have taken, so you, you've asked me a question. Woman, why are you crying? They have taken the, the, the Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. Then John writes, at this, at, at what? At the fact that I answered your question? I, I don't know what at this means. At this Mary turned around. So I don't understand, this is the bit that I think, John, I don't really know what you're talking about because it's not like John writes, and then Mary heard a noise behind her and so she turned around. All we're given is angels ask a random question, Mary answers it, then at this, at the answer to a random question, Mary turns around, she sees, um, she saw Jesus standing there Um, And she, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Same question. Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him. (laughs) Like. There is a very strange orienting of the narrative that's happening in this because Mary turns from the angels at something. We're not told what, but she turns. She has a conversation with the thing she's turned towards who got her attention and then the narrative says she turns again. This is where you get the idea that John is not writing Just historical narrative, he's writing theology. And this is, I want to show you what I think John is doing this. There is, so there's these turnings that are happening in this passage, which are strange. There's a lot of movement from Mary with no real apparent um, logical sense. So John's doing something else. When you're studying, the, one of the things you can do when you're studying the Bible is you can... um, When you come across something that's unusual, you can use the principle of um, first, it's called first principles. So what you do is you go, oh, there's this turning thing happening in the passage. When was the first time, was there a first time that John has used the idea of turning before in his gospel? So you look back to find out what on earth Is John doing writing these random turnings into this thing? Because it doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense. So if you were to have a look at where else in John's gospel that John uses the word turning, you will find he only ever uses it once and it's in chapter one. First principles. This is what happens in John chapter one. The next day, John the Baptist, not John the author, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus turning around, Jesus turns, saw them following and, and asked another question, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? This is the... This is the idea of first principles. So then what you do is you put these next side by side because John's doing a mirroring thing. This is why the Gospels are like magnificent works of art. So in John chapter 1, we have John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. When he sees Jesus, he tells his disciples, that's the guy, follow him. Jesus turns Because Jesus is turning towards humanity. He has come towards us. He sees them following. He asks them a question and they say, Rabbi. Then in our John chapter 20 passage, we have Mary turning. So Jesus has turned towards humanity. And now John is writing about the humanity turning back to Christ. Jesus asks her a question. Mary says, Rabbi. There is this mirroring of this turning. And John is, is writing again and again. like he's just, This is just the layers of delight that is in this passage. That Jesus has turned towards us. So we are able to turn towards him. Jesus first turned towards humanity. God in Christ in flesh turned to humanity so humanity could turn to God. And Mary is embodying in John's theological narrative the returning of people back to the risen Christ. So this is not just about Mary. There's a kind of, also a new kind of similar, or another kind of mirroring that's happening when John the Baptist points to Jesus and said, now you should follow him, there's like a passing over of like, you followed me, now follow him. When, the risen, when Mary turns to the risen Christ, she has to do a similar pivot. She's followed the flesh and blood, Jesus of Nazareth. Now she has to learn how to follow the risen Christ, who is as, maybe as different and the same. As the disciples who had to turn from John the Baptist to Jesus so there's this other kind of mirroring that's going on this new kind of following that it's going to take a new kind of following to follow the risen Christ then the, the flesh and blood Jesus if you take first principles, this idea, back even further, and you're going to just have to take my word for this at the moment because I don't have the time to explain it, but all throughout John's Gospel, he's basically rewriting the creation narrative. He's, the Gospel of John is one of the most intelligent pieces of literature you could ever study. And in it, he's rewriting the creation narrative. There's all kinds of ways you see this when your eyes are open to it. John's always saying, and the next day... And the next day, and what does that sound like? The creation narrative, maybe one of the most recent, according to this timelines that happened is on the cross, Jesus cries out, "It is finished, and then he has a rest <laughs> in in the grave at the end of or at the end of the Genesis chapter one narrative was in chapter two it's um says on the by the by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing and on the seventh day he rested there's these parallels with the creation narrative that are happening all through so John puts the words it is finished in the mouth of Jesus now he might have actually said them but he's using this to be like this is finished now Jesus has a little rest Then on the next day he meets Mary so it's like new creation springing forth all the time if you use the idea of first principles and to ask this question about turning and take it back even further, you'll, we will discover, we can discover that in Genesis chapter 3, there is also this idea of turning that's going on, that I think John is picking up on so in Genesis chapter 3 when we get to that they've eaten the fruit they've hidden from God God has come looking for them in the garden and they have confessed that they did what they were not supposed to do and there are consequences to their turning away from God and this is what God says to Eve he says your desire or your turning will now be for your husband And he says to the man, your turning will now be to the ground that you will turn and return to. And then in verse 24, at the very end of Genesis chapter 3, it says this. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side or at at the front of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth, which actually means turning every which way. To guard the way to the tree of life. So what's John doing in, let's if we go back to John chapter 20, what's going on? Not only is there a turning that's going on that God has turned to humanity and humanity can now turn back to God, but there is a complete unwinding of the curse of humanity. So why does Mary do an exact about turn when she doesn't need to turn again because she's already facing Christ? Because now her turning is not for uh, her husband, but it's for the Lord. She is the embodiment of all humanity, which is now turned back to the Lord why are there angels in this narrative because there were angels that guarded the turning to the tree of life but now the tree of life is standing in their midst and the angels no longer guard the way to the tree of life they point the way so they show up to lay down their flaming swords So that humanity can forever be joined back towards the tree of life standing in the garden. It's like this amazing richness in this passage. This is why I think the Gospels are magnificent works of art. Because you can read these passages and just see that they're just telling a story. and And then you can read them and then you can read them and then you can read them and then they read you. Because they invite you into a turning. They invite us into a recognition of how are we turning towards the tree of life, towards the risen Christ. So John has Mary undoing all the turnings. No longer are we turned away from God, but God is turned towards us and we are turned back to him. And all of the curses of the original turning are unwound and undone. And the way to the tree of life is now pointed to by angels. We could read on, but we're almost out of time. Jesus goes on to say, don't hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Lots of people, they speculate about that. I don't, you could preach six sermons on different readings of that. I think there's a sense that this new risen Christ that Mary longs to just grasp, she needs to hold in a different way than what she wants to, some kind of fresh surrender. And then Jesus sends Mary off as the first evangelist, the first good news messenger to the disciples. So this is one of the beautiful Eastertide stories of the risen Christ. It's one of the magnificent writings of scripture where the disciple that Jesus loved, who was a fast runner, was also an incredible author of high theology and deep depth. And he wrote into these accounts of the story of Jesus, magnificent theology that invites us into our own consideration of what Jesus might be saying to us. So just as we finish, I just want to maybe take a deep breath. I'll take a deep breath. You take a deep breath. And to come back to that question, those two hearings that I asked you to think about at the beginning. What is God saying to you this afternoon? What has jumped out at you What has been your invitation into the beauty of Jesus through this passage of Scripture? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enliven the words of Scripture to our hearts. Would you reveal the Jesus who has turned towards us That we would join in with Mary and turn around back to Him. Would you remind us that we can always turn and return and return back to the tree of life, back to the Lord of life? Would you help us to rest in your presence? Would you help us? to see your divine goodness in dark places would you come to us with timely questions and would you help us to see beyond the immediate and into the beauty of eternity Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central.